If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a mostly listener-backed show and we are still calling in for more support so we can reach our Patreon goal. To join us starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash greendreamer. Support for this episode also comes from Tonelay, a maker-led community that creates clothing, accessories, and homewares from reclaimed materials. Tonelay centers people historically sidelined by the fashion industry as leaders and creators, and collaboration, reciprocity, and justice are some of their core values that I feel aligned with. Right now, I'm particularly looking forward to their collaboration with Cambodian-Australian designer Natalie Lee, which will be a small capsule of hand-woven, plant-dyed clothing made with regenerative fibers like kapok from trees that grow right around the weaving center that they work with in Cambodia. To check out Tonle, you can head to tonle.com. That's spelled T-O-N-L-E dot com. Again, T-O-N-L-E dot com. In a settler colonial system, in a capitalist system, we are alienated from land. We tend to see land as a commodity. And in the mapping that I see, the cartographies of capital that I see, what happens are developers will enclose a piece of land and will fragment it even further until it's broken up into smaller and smaller pieces that they can argue is then no longer agriculturally feasible or no longer culturally sensitive. Today, we welcome to Green Dreamer Candice Fujikane, who is co-editor of a special issue of AmeriAsia Journal, whose vision, Asian Settler Colonialism in Hawaii, published in 2000, and Asian Settler Colonialism from Local Governance to the Habits of Everyday Life in Hawaii, published in 2008. She is a Japanese settler, Aloha Aina, standing for lands and waters in Hawaii by mapping the mo'olelo of places and mobilizing the ancestral knowledges encoded in the mo'olelo to protect those places. And her new book is Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, Kanaka Maoli and Critical Settler Cartographies in Hawaii. Candice, we're so honored to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Of course. So to help us contextualize your perspectives and story and inspirations, I'd love for you to first share a little about your upbringing and your background and what it was that first got you interested in examining the world and your reality in Hawaii through a decolonial lens. So I grew up on Maui in Pukalani, that's upcountry on the slopes of Haleakala. And uh, I went to the University of Hawaii and I got my BA in English and my PhD from Berkeley. And it was when I was away that I realized how important Hawaii is as a place that's thinking about envisioning different ways of living, more sustainable ways, you could say, ways that are more based in Kanaka Maoli knowledges. And I could only appreciate that when I was far away from home. When I returned, I became involved in Hawaiian movements for land and sovereignty in Hawaii. And I was a professor at the University of Hawaii. And I was working with Haunani K. Trask, who is an incredible Kanaka Maoli leader, a scholar, a poet. She brings together the best of all these different worlds. And I learned so much from her about her love for the Lahui. So the Lahui is the word you would use for the Native Hawaiian people or collective or nation. And when I think about nation, I think about it both in statist and non-statist forms. So Kanaka Maoli are seeking to regain political independence, but there are many ways that on a day-to-day basis, Kanaka Maoli are meeting their everyday needs without federal or international recognition as an independent nation. So those are the things that kind of fuel my research. And I started looking at maps as a way to imagine a more decolonial relationship with land. And we think about maps, they really are biographies of land. They teach us about the histories of lands and the people who've lived there, the knowledges that the people have gained from, like Kanaka Maoli have gained from intergenerational kilo or the art of close observation. And so I looked at maps and the ways that these maps tell stories and the ways that people were using maps in their struggles to protect lands and waters. So that was very, very important to me to be a participant in the struggle, the struggles that I was writing about, and to actually understand that different way of living with land, in relation to land, a more relational and embodied form of scholarship and activism. Mm. We had previously explored the struggles of Black liberation and Native sovereignty as ways to understand what planetary healing, with a more holistic lens of seeing humans as interwoven into the web of life would involve. And related to this conversation, we had welcomed Auntie Pua onto the show, who talked about the growing movement to protect Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And I believe you're connected as well. We haven't yet specifically addressed Asian settler colonialism, which is something that you have focused on. And that involves a complex and multifaceted history that looks different everywhere for the diverse Asian migrant and settler communities. But specifically to Hawaii and Turtle Island, now known as the United States, what are the key points you'd like people to keep in mind to help inform 
the various ways that Asian Americans today may be supporting or maybe otherwise undermining the broader structure of the U.S. settler state? Oh, that's such a great question. So we first started using the term Asian settler in 2000, and it was really from how Nani K. Trask's work, where she pointed to the state legislature and she asked, look at the state legislature and tell me, what is the ethnic breakdown of the legislature? I actually did call all the offices in the legislature in 2000 and in 2005, and it broke down to 65% of the legislature is Asian and 25% is white, which corresponds to the general population of whites, which is about 20%. And Kanaka Maoli are 10% of the legislature, while the general population of Kanaka Maoli is actually 20%. Okay, so if we look at that 65% of the legislature being Asian, 40% of that is Japanese, and Japanese are only 20% of the general population. So we can see that Japanese are overrepresented by twice the number in their general population. And this is because the educational system in Hawaii is dominated by Japanese teachers. So uh, if you also look at the Department of Education statistics for teachers and administrators, they are largely Japanese. So in Hawaii, a lot of people come away with this kind of representation of Japanese as figures of authority, as being, you know, figures of integrity and leadership. And that's gone a long way to the rise of the Japanese in the state legislature. And, and many people are familiar with U.S. Senator Daniel Inoue, who was a war hero. And for those reasons, the Japanese have gained a lot of political power in Hawaii, often to the detriment of Native Hawaiians. And the, the case of the, the construction of the TMT or the State legislature's support for the TMT is a really important example that shows us that Asian settler colonialism is a very powerful force in Hawaii, and we need to recognize that. Of course, when our book came out, so many people were so angry because they said, we're local, you know, we're not settlers, only white people are settlers. And we really had to work hard to show different communities that people of color are settlers as well, because we don't have that genealogical connection to land that indigenous people do, that Kanaka Maoli do in Hawaii. We have ancestral lands elsewhere. And for most of us, you know, it's not a question of Japanese culture being stamped out because of the bans on the instruction in Japanese language, things that Hawaiians have had to, to survive the banning of Hawaiian language from 1896 to 1986, all of those things, the dismissal of Hawaiian knowledges, the insistence that Kanaka Maoli are no longer indigenous because they are now Americans. Those are all American arguments that Kanaka Maoli reject, and they argue that they continue to be the native people of the land. In the case of the TMT, Kanaka Maoli were saying, as, as Pua explains, and, and I know Pua, and she's been such an amazing role model for me, she explains that, of course, Mauna Kea is sacred 
to Kanakamali. Stones are sacred. The land is sacred. The land is an embodiment of Papahanao Moku, Mauna Wakea. She calls her Mama Mauna, I think. The, the Mauna is her mama, her big mama, she calls her. But the Mauna is actually, interestingly, both male and female. And so there's a lot of important Kanakamali cultural lessons that we've learned from Mauna Wakea. So I followed that particular struggle from 2011 to the present, and I've stood on the front lines. I've served as an, a legal observer, mainly because I, as an older Japanese woman, I remind police officers of their mothers and their aunties. So I try to try to use that mm-hmm. to to protect people who are being abused by the police. There are terrible stories on Haleakala when they were standing against the Daniel Inoue solar telescope. And again, there's an example of settler colonialism when when the telescope is named after Daniel Inoue. There was one protector whose skull was fractured when a police officer kneeled on his head. And that kind of brutality was very much in our minds every time we've stood for Mauna Kea. And so I've tried to take on a role that takes advantage of the fact that I am Japanese and I have this to offer. I have this privilege that I can use to protect the people who are protecting Mauna Wakea. So in the case of Mauna Kea, it was very sad. You know, legislators all came forward with a vision for Mauna Kea. And of course, they were not Kanaka Maoli. The mayor of Hawaii Island, Mayor Harry Kim, he's Korean, came forth with his vision for Mauna Kea. And at an OHA meeting, that's the Office for Hawaiian Affairs, I testified when Harry Kim was there. And I said, Harry Kim, you look like my uncles. You look like my father. But we're settlers here. We, this is not our ancestral lands. We don't have that kuleana or that right or responsibility to enact a vision for Mauna Kea. And in other ways, as an Asian settler, I've worked really hard towards being an Asian settler ally. And even more than that, an Asian settler aloha aina. So Professor Noelani Gujir Kaupua has a wonderful book called The Seeds We Planted. And in that book, she says, perhaps Asian settlers can enact an Asian settler aloha aina, one that supports Hawaiian independence, that stands for the lands and waters, but never forgets that we come from a position of privilege. So I really embrace that idea of being a settler, aloha aina. Some people just want to call themselves allies, but to me it's important to foreground settler, to show that we are still in a system of settler colonialism and occupation in Hawaii. Um, and so I, I try to use that, you know, some people tell me, oh, Candace, you're, you're, you know, you really have like a Hawaiian value system. And I say, but I'm still a settler and there's a value in me identifying that way to the state legislature, to politicians, to legislators, right? So there's, there's so much about Asian settler colonialism. There are many Asian settler aloha aina in Hawaii. There are many allies and aloha aina. Aloha aina take it a step further because they really do support 
the return of independence to Kanaka Maoli. To me, the Asian settler allies are the ones who still identify as American. So they're allies, but um, they're not quite that step of supporting Hawaiian independence. And this is, it's been a 20-year-old argument. You know, our argument first came out in 2000. And now I see these younger scholars taking up this argument as if it's, you know, just an everyday thing to call yourself a settler. And I really appreciate that kind of shift in thinking that we've been able to bring about. Right. As you speak to cartography and decision-making for the future of certain lands are very different when we have ancestral ties to the bioregional landscape compared to when we don't have those relationships, no matter what identity we feel most aligned with. And in a recent conversation I had with Indigenous cartographer Steve DeRoy, he had shared the different ways that mapping shapes our worldviews and informs power dynamics. So I wonder if you could share your perspectives on why you think it's so important for us to re-examine the ways that these dominant tools are not so objective as they seem, but may reinforce certain extractive values and ideologies based on the lenses that they center for us to understand the world with? I love that question. I love that question. So the Kumulipo in Hawaii traces the cosmogonic genealogy of Kanaka Maoli from the depths of Po, the deep darkness out of which all things emerge and all things are born. It's the vale vale, the slime, the primordial slime. And, and that for that reason, Kanakamali have familial relationships with all living things, including the stars, including the land. They say that, again, that the land is Papahanaumoku, she who is the foundation birthing islands. She is their grandmother. Her daughter, Ho'ohoku Kalani, had a child with Wakea. And the first child was the first taro plant, and the second child was the first ali'i. And that is the genealogical connection that Kanaka have with land. And if you ask them, if you push on this, right, it means that Kanaka are land. They are aina. And so in terms of this epistemological framing, the difference between a settler colonial mapping and indigenous mapping has to do with the severing of those connections and relationships. So in a settler colonial system, in a capitalist system, we are alienated from land. We tend to see land as a commodity. And in the mapping that I see, the cartographies of capital that I see, what happens are developers will enclose a piece of land and will fragment it even further until it it's broken up into smaller and smaller pieces that they can argue is then no longer agriculturally feasible or no longer culturally sensitive. And I've seen cases where one piece of land will have a 150-page cultural impact assessment saying that the impact of development on this land would have a tremendously devastating effect for Kanaka Maoli. And in an adjacent piece of land, that there would only be a 10-page cultural impact assessment because the archaeologists only look at whatever is within the red boundary lines and not at the ways in which 
multiple sites comprise a complex. So that's also a problem in archaeology, the way archaeology maps the land. There's a new form of archaeology called distributional archaeology that insists that we look at individual sites as part of a complex. And I think that's been a very, very important methodological change for Indigenous peoples. By contrast, when you look at the ways that Kanaka Maoli map land, they map places in relationship to each other. So in this one place in Waianae where a developer was trying to argue that this one piece of land was not culturally sensitive, the concerned elders of Waianae, as a group of elders, they actually argued that the mountain is Hina. Hina is at Pu'uheleakala beating her kappa, but she's also the Mauna. And her two children are the surrounding hills around her, Nanaiku'ule and Lualuale. And her son, Maui, is in the ocean, and he's fishing up the islands from the seas of Ulehava. And in this way, the landforms are ohana, or family to each other. And they're not just, they're family in an important genealogical way, but it also points to ecological lessons of the importance of continuities, the importance of preserving the continuities of stream flows from the mountains through to the seas, because the stream flows are important to the, the mixing of the salt and the fresh water creates the brackish water estuaries that are nurseries for the baby fish. And so in these kinds of stories about land as ohana or land as family, you can see these ecological continuities and relationships. What Kanaka Maoli called the pilina, the pilina is that connection. You know, we learn to be pili to the aina, and we also learn that pilina, that relationality. And and I, if I can, I want to tell this amazing story that illustrates this value of the integrity of land, and that is in the migration of the great reptilian water deities from their home islands in the clouds to Oahu. So uh, Mo'inanea is the great matriarch of the Mo'o deities, and they are 30-foot-long lizards that can take the form of very fierce men and women who are all water protectors. So the Mo'o women are often sunning themselves in pools of water on, on rocks, you know, similar to mermaids or sirens. They seduce men and then eat their lovers, but they're also feared as water protectors. And in this migration, they land on one end of Oahu and they travel in a procession across the land two by two until they reach this part that's past Pu'uloa or Pearl Harbor. It's actually um, an area called Vaulani. And when the first Mo'o hit this area, the last Mo'o are still at the landing point in Waialua. So you can imagine thousands of these lizards crossing the land. And as water protectors, they later disperse to every body of land in Hawaii, to fish ponds, to springs, to pools, to waterfalls and streams. They go underground because there are subterranean waterways. And so Kanaka had this vision or this or their understanding of the connectedness of land has to do with this continuous backbone of mo'o. 
And they even came up with a word for land called mo'aina, meaning lands that are connected in a series within an ahupua'a, which is a larger land division. So the mo'aina is a smaller land division that interlocks across ahupua'a, across larger land divisions. And that enables us to trace the movement of water. And so this story of the migration of the mo'o is a story about water conservation. It's about the protection of water. Today, we see large corporations diverting waters away from streams to feed. At first, it was like the plantations, the sugar plantations. Sugar is an extremely thirsty plant. But later, we saw that going to feed um, housing developments. Right now, the military banks water. There's water banking going on in Hawaii. They're trying to hog the water in case they decide to build new housing for military families. And so what we learn from the story of the mo'o is that there are laws of the elements, laws of the akua. And one of the laws that's been identified by the Edith Kanaka'ole Foundation, uh, which is a, a Edith Kanaka'ole was a famous kumuhula, they're now looking at the chance to understand the ecological lessons that teach us how to steward the different ecological zones. There's 22 vow or zones to be stewarded. So anyway, I just, I love this story so much because it gives me a clear picture in my head of the integrity of land that counters capital's maps of, of fragmentation, disconnection, um, alienation. On this note, I want to read a really potent quote from you. You said, in this era of late liberal settler colonialism, cartography as a methodology is critical to re-articulating our radically contingent relationships with the living lands, seas, and skies. Capital fears abundance because it must manufacture the perception of scarcity to generate markets, end quote. Especially this last part. I mean, how does having a mindset of scarcity shape our politics, societal structures, and economic systems differently compared to if we understood Earth through a lens of abundance? Oh, yeah. It is, it is just amazing how abundant lands get condemned as being agriculturally unfeasible by uh, state agencies that want to develop things like industrial parks. And it's, it's just amazing that capital doesn't just map wastelands. It creates the illusion of wastelands. And that to me is the, the most horrible thing, is to take a living land and to make it appear as if it's a wasteland. And this is true for Mauna Wakea. Mauna Wakea has been called a wasteland. If you look at territorial maps, it actually lists, the, it labels the summit 
as a wasteland. But what it's what it's doing, what the state is doing when it chooses to label Mauna Kea a wasteland is the state wants it for other purposes. So it's it's using that illusion of scarcity in order to claim the mountain for astronomy, to claim the mountain. In fact, <laughs> there was even a, a land appraiser who went up there and says, well, you know, this is not beachfront property, so you can't command high lease rates for these lands. And yet he was also arguing that it was the only place for astronomical development. And I remember one of the activists testifying and said, where she said, you cannot be speaking out of both sides of your mouth at once. You cannot say this land is worthless and then say it's the only place for astronomy. So I think that that's one way of getting at, the thing that concerns me the most is when abundant lands are condemned as wastelands. And so the most agriculturally productive land in Hawaii is now occupied by military bases. And I remember a planner telling me that, or asking me the question, do you know what was the most agriculturally abundant land on Oahu? And I said, uh, was it on the, on the, the windward side where there's a lot of rain? He says, no, it's where you see Schofield barracks right now. And that's also true for Lualuale, where the the naval radio transmitter towers are located. That facility is located. The military took the most abundant lands. And instead of planting food, there is now unexploded ordinance. The land is seeded with unexploded ordinance. And that, to me, illustrates both the dangers of the maps of capital, or it's actually corporate capital, Versus indigenous stories about Mauna Awakea that point to the fact that the Mauna is a container of water. So if you look at stories from, you know, these kilo observations embedded in the Oli is a recognition that the primary source of water for Mauna Awakea is fog drip and that the land is saturated with water. And if you look at other stories about Mauna Wakea, there are stories about Kamiki gathering water from Lake Vaiao, which is near the summit of the Mauna, and some of the water splashing over the sides of his bowl to create all of the springs that extend out from Mauna Kea to other mountains miles and miles away. And so this understanding of Mauna Kea is important because Mauna Kea sits on five aquifers and the astronomical facilities sit entirely on one particular aquifer. And that's why, you know, we're, we're standing to protect the Mauna. The TMT proposed to put three 5,000 gallon tanks under, underground. And people don't realize that 5,000 gallons is equivalent to 18 tons. And one would be for chemical wastewater from the washing of the lenses. Another tank would be for human wastewater. And in this way, you can see that there's the danger of toxic spills because these tanks would have to be emptied once a month by a truck that would travel an unpaved dirt road that is often iced over in the wintertime. So the, the possibilities of a devastating spill is always a possibility. 
So yeah, that is the the difference between this kind of mapping of scarcity versus the mapping of abundance. Mm-hmm. And I think what's important is, you know, some people feel like I'm being overly optimistic by talking about abundance. And I say, no, abundance is a refusal of scarcity. It's a refusal of that rhetoric of scarcity. It's a refusal of capital's construction of scarcity. It is actually an insistence on life. Really beautifully said. And it does seem like a lot currently doesn't really make sense. And that is because of these socially constructed settler systems that we've layered on top of existing complex and abundant ecological and cultural systems. So, for example, all the rich rainforests in the Amazon are currently being converted into monocultural degraded industrial farms because that is what is more valuable to our current reductive system. Because again, we we have these maps of capital that are rooted in social constructs rather than maps of abundance that are actually rooted in reality of ecology. And I feel very much aligned with the idea that scarcity has largely been a human construct and the byproduct of our dominant cultures and systems of things like privatization, separation, a narrow definition of the self, extraction without giving back and reciprocity, and of course, exploitation. But where we stand today with our climate crisis and sixth mass extinction, would you say that we've sort of manifested a reality of scarcity, which then actually justifies our current societal and economic structures that built, that were built off of that initially false, but now realized presumption? That is exactly what's happening, is the that the illusion that these maps of capital create the illusion of scarcity that these industrial products then manifest. I to- it's like the worst, the worst, you know, I, I hear indigenous people using the word manifest in a very positive and regenerative and reciprocal way. And then you kind of see how it's being used and it's being enacted on the scale of capital. So I, I could even give you one more example. I have to tell you this one example because it kills me. At one point, the developer was saying that a piece of land could not grow anything on it. And he indicated that it was classified as E-lands, the least productive lands. And when I looked at the maps in the surrounding areas, I noticed that there were other maps that said B number I, like B36 I-lands. And what I realized was that he was showing us what land looks like when you don't water it. Mm. And when you do water it, the land improves to B quality lands and the I stands for irrigation. So when the land is irrigated, it produces. So it was just so emblematic to me of that kind of rhetoric of scarcity that you would talk about land without watering it as dead land. <laughs> and I, so I use that in my testimony and the commissioners were shocked and I was really happy because I think the developer was so shaken up. He put a picture of that map in his folder and I, I knew it was something that bothered him that they had done, they had done this terrible thing and hadn't even hidden their tracks well, you know? Mm. So anyway, <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. I think it's really critical for us to understand how mapping for abundance is deeply tied to indigenous worldviews and knowledges of how to actually be regenerative members of the community. As you say, 
as the cartographies of capital exacerbate climate change events, we are beginning to see the demise of capitalist economies of scarcity, which are making way for indigenous economies of abundance, end quote. Aligning with indigenous rights, worldviews, and sovereignty is inherently oppositional to the settler state and the extractive economy. And yet the dominant environmental movement seems to be disproportionately shaped by those most empowered by the current system through capital and proximity to the source of power. So I wonder if you could speak to the differences you've witnessed between the mainstream environmental movement that is merely a product of the current system compared to the growing movement of people wanting to actually uproot colonial structures and worldviews altogether to give space to more imaginative and life-enhancing ways of being and organizing. Right. So this is true all over that you see Indigenous people on the very front lines of movements against climate change. And one example of the ways that they often come up against environmentalists would be the example in Hawaii at Kahuku, where there was a private corporation working in collaboration with the electric company to put in wind power. And so these giant turbines, they are they're problematic all over the world. And I was reading these amazing articles about South America, where the people were rising up against these wind turbines. And the problem with the wind turbines in Kahuku is that they were placed 1,300 feet away from schools and residences. Other parts of the world, they have a five-mile setback requirement, or even at the very least, a one-mile setback requirement. But in Kahuku, it was 1,300 feet. And so you had on the one side the residents of Kahuku with children and elderly people, people who had epilepsy, whose seizures were triggered by the, the low-frequency vibrations and sounds from the turbines. And you had them um, saying that this was also killing off the native bats. And on the other side, you had the environmentalists saying that this was what we needed to reach our energy goals for the state. And it was just kind of such so, so revealing to me that any kind of fight against climate change would come at the expense of indigenous peoples. So that if you want a wind farm, let's put it in, in an indigenous community, no matter what the side effects will be. And I think that's been so heartbreaking. And for those of us who are settlers, I think it's important that we stand with indigenous peoples, native peoples who are on the front lines of these movements against climate change. It's heartbreaking to me to see that only Kanaka, Kanaka Maoli are on these front lines in Hawaii because a lot of Asians benefit, right, from the current state legislature and they, they don't understand what the cost is of these kinds of so-called energy efficient development in the communities. So, when I was standing with the residents and learning about why they were opposed to the wind turbines, I heard, I heard a woman explain that she had been arrested three times. And there's, there's something terribly wrong with that. And I said to her, why don't you go to the side and I will take your place and I will be arrested. It doesn't hurt me to be arrested. You know, I'm older. I have a job. I have a, I have a home. And it's easier for me to bear that kind of uh, responsibility. And, you know, for someone 
being arrested for the fourth time, she would have faced like tremendous penalties. So I feel like that is a space where those of us who are not Kanaka, those of us who are not Indigenous as settler allies, as settler aloha aina, we can step in at that point to take on the arrests. There were 212 people. Well, actually, I should say there were 212 arrests at Kahuku over a period of a month. And then I wonder how many actual people were arrested. I think the actual number was much smaller because people, Kanaka Maoli, were getting arrested three or four times and standing for their communities. So, you know, we see this extractive economies again and again, even in cases where green, a green economy is, is actually enacting settler colonial practices. And right. I think that that's, yeah, that's just been really eye-opening to see that. And, and I do see sincere efforts on the part of, you know, state energy commissions to try to include Indigenous communities in decision-making processes. But that's also a, a difficult thing. I mean, I think representation is important, but they have to work harder to get not just consultation, but consent. Absolutely. And yeah, that various environmental solutions currently are coming at the cost of the well-being of indigenous communities is deeply troubling and kind of shows that we're kind of veering off track because of everything that we talked about today in regards to who really has the place-based knowledges needed to regenerate our various degraded ecosystems. And the fact that we know that Indigenous peoples make up about 6.2% of our global population, but steward over 80% of Earth's biodiversity. So that's just, that in of itself really speaks volumes. And as we look ahead, much of the climate solutions, like we just mentioned, we have right now are often influenced by moneyed incentives in place. And that is, of course, a challenge to address. And with that aside, a lot of our most hyped solutions are also shaped mostly by Western science and Western modes of inquiry. I know you've been leaning into a different way of knowing and understanding the world known as Kilo, which is rooted in Kanaka Maoli culture or native Hawaiian culture. So what have you learned from this practice that you feel comfortable sharing with us that might plant some seeds of inspiration in our minds? Okay, so I mentioned the Edith Kanaka Ole Foundation, and they have a whole school of knowledge called Papaku Makovalu, and they are experts who who have knowledge about Papahulilani is the heavens or the skies, the atmosphere, constellations and moon phases, things like that, and the effects of the moon phases on different practices. There's another school called Papahuli Honua about the earth and the earth the natural biological processes of the earth. And then there's Papa, Papa Hanao Moku, Papa Nui Hanao Moku, I think. I'm sorry, I'm kind of, I think, what is, I think that's the third name. And that one is about the birthing processes. Now, under these three houses of knowledge, there's so much amazing information about the natural ways to understand and to direct our energies. So, for example, Noilani Punivai is a professor at the University of Hawaii, and she's a Kanaka Maoli scientist. And she explains that we have to learn the akua or the elements 
roots of our the places where we live. So Kanaka Maoli have 400,000 akua, and that word akua has been popularly translated as God, but it really is the elemental forms and the natural processes in the world. So for example, Kane is known as the water that flows underground. He's the fresh water flows underground, and Kanaloa is the deep consciousness of the ocean. And in many of the Mo'olelo or Oli, these two akua walk the earth, they walk the islands, and they're creating springs as they go along, and they collect water to make ava, which is a ceremonial drink. Now, the important thing to remember in terms of climate is that the cold waters of Kane, the fresh waters that emerge into Kanaloa, into the ocean through underground springs and through streams and stream flows, that's important to regulating the temperature of waters around our islands. And when we think about hurricanes, you know, we're in the middle of the Pacific and we are very grateful that we are not more often the target of these hurricanes. But part of the reason for that is that the cold waters around the islands protect us from hurricanes. So when hurricanes come close to the islands, they tend to veer north or they veer south because of the relationship between Kane and Kanaloa. And these freshwater springs around the islands are famous. There are places called Punalu'u, which means diving. Uh, Puna is to uh, a freshwater spring and, and Lu'u is to dive. So people would go with calabashes, gourds, and they'd go and collect freshwater out in the ocean because they knew where these freshwater springs were. Anyway, so that relationship between these elemental forms, the ocean and the freshwater springs, we can see is crucial to protecting the islands. And so how do we continue that relationship? How do we help to support that relationship when so much water is being diverted by corporate and militarized projects? Well, one thing that one fish pond is doing is that they're clearing these mangroves that have been clogging up the stream flow to the ocean and it feeds their fish pond. So the fish pond needs oxygen, Fish pond needs cold waters for the fish to regulate the temperatures. And these two things are necessary for the survival of the fish in the fish ponds. So they've taken to eliminating, like cutting and burning these mangroves. In other parts of the Pacific, in other parts of the world, mangroves are really important for flood mitigation. But we always have to consider the particularities of, of location. And in Hawaii, in this particular case, the mangroves are suffocating the fish fish ponds and the fresh flows of water. Okay, so they they took out much of the mangroves. The Ke'ea stream is now feeding the fish ponds. They've been seeing the exponential scale of restorative effects. So what I like to think to myself is just as a tiny act can have exponentially harmful consequences like a two-degree increase in temperature can have exponentially harmful consequences in terms of sea level rise. By the same token, small restorative events have exponentially restorative effects. And so by restoring these stream flows, they've actually brought back the native birds. They've brought back the native plants. The coral is now flourishing 
because of that, the regulation of the temperature of the waters in the bay. So it's affecting the reef systems. And this again is, is having effects far beyond what we know. There's also the cultivation of phytoplankton in these fish ponds. And we know phytoplankton is vital to the production of oxygen. So I love to see these, these cascading restorative effects when you can tap or actually learn from indigenous knowledge ways. And they, you know, so when I talk about the 400,000 Akua, there's one called Hina Lua'iko'a. And Hina is the goddess of the moon, but she's also tied to the corals. And Hina Lua'i, Lua'i means to vomit or to expel that which is within. And Ko'a is coral. So that is the name, that is the deity of coral spawning. And it's just incredibly beautiful, all of these examples, thinking about the names. Another one would be Kalau Akolea. So Lau is like the frond of the Akolea fern. So Kalau Akolea is the process of fog drip because the fog collects in the cloud forests on the Akolea fern. And so I, they've been doing this amazing work. Laka is the deity of hula, but she's also the process of evapotranspiration. So there's this amazing, amazing knowledge ways that we need to learn from. And what happens a lot of times is that the state will say that cultural practitioners are biased, culturally biased, and so they won't even listen at all to the knowledge that they have. But it's incredible to see what happens when they're able to enact practices based on that knowledge. This is all deeply affirming. And it's like you knew where the flow of this conversation was going, because I was going to close this off by reading this quote of yours that I think sums up everything that you just said really beautifully. You said, mapping abundance is a refusal to succumb to capital's logic that we have passed an apocalyptic threshold of no return. Just as a harmful event has exponentially devastating effects, a restorative action catalyzes far-reaching and unexpected forms of revitalization, end quote. So I really appreciate you for the stories that you just shared. And as we're nearing the end of our conversation, what invitations to action would you like to leave us with? I, I would like everyone to think about ways that we can be allies, not just standing behind Indigenous people or Blacks or people of color, but to look at the ways that uh, we can enact that through our relationship, our renewed relationship with lands and waters in the places where we live. I think everyone should know where you get your water from. Where does your water come from? Where does your food come from is, you know, the logical question. But water, too, is going to be, it is the next big fight, right? It's They say it's gold, oil, and now it's water. So I guess that would be one thing. And just to keep the faith that in restoration, environmental law has two purposes. One is to protect what is left and two, to repair what is damaged. And I feel like that should be our motto.
What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? So two books, uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer's Braiding Sweetgrass. I love that she's a scientist and a poet. And Mehana Vaughn's Kayaulu Gathering Tides, really about what it means to go into a community and learn from that community, what a community-led subsistence management plan would look like to regulate fishing and regulate other kinds of activities. What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? I do tell myself that quote about how small localized movements for restoration have exponentially restorative effects for the planet. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? Kanaka Maoli scientists and other indigenous scientists who are able to bring together ancestral knowledge and decolonized STEM knowledges. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and uh, stay updated on Candace's work, as well as check out her new book, Mapping Abundance for a Planetary Future, you can head to www.dukeupress.edu. That's where you can find her book. And you can also follow her on Twitter at Fujikane1, on Instagram at CFujikane, and on Facebook at Candice Fujikane. Candice, thank you so much for joining us today and for this deeply nourishing and enriching conversation. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I I believe we have to have hope. I believe we have to have hope. And and I love your podcast. And I feel like it does give all of us so much hope. And, you know, you just ask such great questions that really bring out people's work in so insightful ways. And, And I do feel nourished by that. Thank you so much. This marks the end of this episode of Green Dreamer. To support our independent media platform starting at a gift of $2, you can head to patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's musical offering is Spider by John Slater. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production intern is Spencer Carter. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for listening in and for your support. And I will catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>